part of Double P Media. DoublePmedia.com Podcast Lilibet. Welcome to the Double P family of podcasts, if you are new to that network, and of course to Podcast Lilibet. That's going to be dedicated to all things regarding The Crown on Netflix. My name is Matt Murdock, and I will be one of your hosts on this journey, exploring this historical drama based mostly through the reign of the present queen, Queen Elizabeth. And this is a placeholder podcast to give you a chance to know our intentions and how we're going to go about them. But before I get into why we want to do a podcast on this show, I want to tell you a little bit about myself and my co-hosts and this network. First off, me. For 25 years, I was a professional touring musician. I've now since retired from touring, but I actually started podcasting well over 10 years ago. In 2009, I had a fellow musician who covered the final season of Lost and basically the overall whole story of the show. But our main feature that kind of made our podcast stand out among the three billion Lost podcasts that were out there, our main feature was focusing on the musical score of Michael Giacchino. That podcast was called Keys to Lost. And from there, over the last 10 years, I've dabbled in lots of podcasts starting a whole bunch of them, rarely finishing them. I I guess you could say I kind of have a J.J. Abrams complex where I'm great at starting and then things fall by the wayside. But during that process, I covered shows like Doctor Who, Supernatural, The West Wing, The Newsroom, many others. I'm probably best known for starting a podcast called Podcast Winterfell which covered many seasons of HBO's Game of Thrones, and of course the music score by Ramin Javadi, and of course the books also by George R. R. Martin. Some of the current podcasts that you can find me on right now, they're all part of the Double P family of podcasts, which I'll talk a little bit more about here in a minute. But they include The Dust, which is covering the BBC's adaptation of His Dark Materials. I also cover the score of Mr. Lauren Balf in that podcast. And on the Double P, we also did one covering Penny Dreadful City of Angels called Delightfully Dreadful. I also covered John Pisano's score there. And currently on the Double P main feed, I've also been co-hosting a podcast covering HBO's Lovecraft Country. And I've had some selective score analysis included in that podcast as well, and it's called Shagas Surprise. Now, my co-host on that podcast, Catfish, he's going to be very angry that I didn't use the stupid, scary imitation voice saying that podcast name. Uh, I'm not very good at saying things in a scary way, as you will hear if you listen to Shaka's Surprise on the Double P main feed. And I keep mentioning the Double P family. It's a whole collection of podcasts, some part of the main feed, some separate podcasts on their own, but all of them covering some great shows like The Mandalorian on Disney+, Plus, The Last Kingdom and Babylon Berlin on Netflix, 
there's a whole list of them. It'd take me the rest of this podcast just to list them all. So be sure to check out the Double P. Anytime they're putting something new up, they do so on their social media as well. So I encourage you to follow them at Double PHQ on Twitter and Instagram. That's at the word double and the letters PHQ on Twitter and Instagram. Or you can join their Facebook page and get all of the posts there as well. Facebook.com slash Double PHQ. And the network was started by a friend of mine, Bubba. Back in my podcast Winterfell days, I used to have what we call the fan call-in show. And Bubba used to call in all the time when I first started that podcast. And then he realized he could do a better job at commenting on Game of Thrones than me. And he started his own series of podcasts. And the Joffrey of Podcasts was what launched the Double P family of podcasts. And as I said, it's grown into a whole slew of podcasts. And actually, Bubba... When he can, because he's not always available, but when he can, he's going to be one of my co-hosts here as well. And another person that we're going to have on when she is available is another Double P podcaster, Holly. Now, Holly is someone who co-hosts the Dust podcast with me, again, covering his dark materials. And she's done some Game of Thrones coverage with me in the past as well. In addition to that, you just never know. I may have a surprise guest for some podcasts with me as well. We're just going to have to see about that. A lot of the Double P stuff comes also with a lot of funny attached to it. It's a way to have a hoot. They do have insight into episodes, which is what I'm looking more for when I do a podcast because I'm more of the straight guy than the funny guy. Here, I can't guarantee that we won't dive into the funny sometimes, especially when it's Bubba out there co-hosting with me, Uh, but I also can't guarantee that we will. And with that, I want to tell you my plan, which like all plans is subject to change depending on circumstances, but I want to give you my plan for this podcast. If you're listening to me right now, Chances are that you've already seen this series up to its current point. There's been three seasons, and you're just kind of waiting until November 15th of 2020 for season four to drop. And because of that, I'm actually planning just to look back at the prior three seasons, maybe at about five episodes a time. That's what I'm looking for as a clip for these podcasts. So you won't get many podcasts before November 15th, but we're going to try and cover all of the story up to this point. And in each podcast where we're looking at five episodes, we'll still be looking at the stories of each episode. I'm going to have a music section that covers the score for all of those episodes combined into one music section. And we're going to do some fun things like putting what we see on the show in historical context We'll do some looking at what was in the show as compared to what actually historically happened. We might get into some technical filmmaking issues or not, just not sure yet. But something that's very important to me as well is we'll be focusing on the emotion of each episode because as well as not being someone who's very funny, I'm also a feels kind of guy because I just get into that. I get into investing in the characters and feeling what they're feeling. 
And just so it doesn't seem so straight and serious and doom and gloom, we're going to be playing some games for that particular block of episodes as well, each five-episode block. And then the plan is, is once Season 4 drops on Netflix in November, we're going to look at those episodes individually because we want to make sure that people have time to catch up on things. And we'll give you plenty of spoiler alerts as we go along, making sure that you know, hey, we're talking through Episode 5 of Season 1, or hey, we're talking through Episode 6 of Season 2, so that you can catch up before you listen to us. That's very important to me, and we don't want to spoil you on anything if you haven't seen the series before. But we hope to get in-depth enough that if you have seen the completion of the series to this point, that you won't be bored by what we have to say. Most importantly, and this is where you come in, this podcast is going to be very dependent on your feedback. By that, we want your thoughts about the episodes that we're discussing, your thoughts about the podcast itself, what we can do to improve, what's working for the show. We want all of that. And one way that you can contact us, again, I'm going to plug the double P, you can always contact the double P directly. Again, it's the word double, the letters PHQ on Twitter and Instagram. Or you can find the Facebook posts and comment there or what have you at facebook.com slash double PHQ. Again, the word double, the letters PHQ. But you'll also be able to contact this podcast directly as well. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Lilibetpod. That's L-I-L-I-Bet Pod. Lilibet Pod. Lilibet was the nickname for Queen Elizabeth before she was the queen. And so we decided to call this podcast, Podcast Lilibet. And Lilibet Pod on Twitter is how you find us. Same word, L-I-L-I-Bet Pod at gmail.com is also how you can contact us. Look for Podcast Lilibet on YouTube. That's where our YouTube presentations of this podcast will be. Or you can even leave a voicemail. Wow, old technology. If you actually still use your phone to speak, I don't know many people who do. But this area code, 314, then 269, then 0421 is the number you call. It's actually a number that calls into my Skype so that when you leave the message, I can put it in a podcast when we do feedback podcasts. In addition to that, if you like the idea of music analysis of The Crown and story analysis of The Crown, you can help this podcast out a number of other ways. You know, I put my time into podcasts actually to hear your thoughts. That's what's important to me first and foremost. I need your feedback. Because otherwise, I'm just a guy out here talking in the wind. And it feels good to me to be corrected on things or to have things that I'm feeling confirmed by other people. So again, make sure to use all of that feedback information. You can find it all at mattsaudioblog.com as well. That's M-A-T-T-S audioblog.com. That's where all of the podcasts that I've worked on are available. The most important thing to me about producing a podcast is to hear your thoughts. 
I don't ask for money on a Patreon or such. I don't sell ads here. The only payment that I require is your feedback on episodes or, like I said before, even the podcast itself. It also helps me a great deal if you help us out by subscribing, rating, and most importantly, leaving a written review of this podcast. I know that some apps you're not able to do that, and that's fine. But if you're listening to this on an app or with a service that you are able to leave a written review, please do so. That's what helps us stay noticeable. And wherever you're getting this podcast from now, if it allows you to do that, please do so. Again, you can find all of these links at mattsaudioblog.com, M-A-T-T-S audioblog.com. And to make this podcast have a little more content than me just merely saying hi and making this, hey, we want this spot on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're getting this podcast. I also wanted to show off a little bit and give some analysis of the music by looking at the main theme of this show. And I also want to say this right up front. I talked about not making money and what have you. There's not going to be any part of the music analysis in the YouTube presentations of the podcast. Why, you ask? It's pretty simple. As a musician and a composer myself, something that has always bothered me, something that I actually hate, I hate the idea of just any yokel out there being able to make a buck, whether they're even accurate with their analysis or not off of my hard work as a writer, as a composer, as a performer. And when I do an audio podcast, as long as I only make it available to certain providers, then I don't have to worry that anybody's going to make any money off of my analysis of a fellow artist's work. Audio podcasts, that's pretty easy to do. But if I put this stuff on YouTube, talking about the music of Zimmer or whoever, I don't want anybody making money off of their work either when it's just brought with my analysis. And YouTube is different. Sometimes YouTube will put an ad right up front, or sometimes it might even drop in the middle of a presentation. And I can choose to not enter their partnership so that I don't make any money But I really can't control YouTube themselves just going ahead and putting an ad on the front of something anyway and making money off of it for themselves. And I'll be honest, there's a heck of a lot of really crappy analysis out there where people are making money. The crappy analysis out there ends up putting money in people's pockets other than the artists themselves. And the people that are making the analysis don't really deserve that money. And I'm not going to be part of that. I Just out of respect of my own values for my fellow artists, the way I would want to be treated myself. So the bottom line is no music analysis on YouTube. And that's just so that no one can make any money off of Zimmer or Abalf, except Zimmer or Abalf, with your support of them by the usual means, however you're listening to their music. Okay, so rant over, and 
we're going to be getting into the part of the podcast that won't be on YouTube. As I mentioned before, Bubba and or Holly or whoever else besides me that comes on this podcast, they're all going to be great as co-hosts to talk to you about the story, the filmmaking, all of that kind of stuff. But now we're getting into the part that I'm actually best at. And as a musician who has performed, toured, and even composed a little bit, this portion is one of my passions, talking about the music score of a television series and how that affects us sometimes in ways that we don't even realize. And this series, The Crown, actually has a lot to offer in that department. Something you should know right up front is there have to date been three separate composers working on this show. And two of those three composers have been part of a team for the man who composed the main theme of the show. So a fourth composer. And Hans Zimmer is the composer that gave us the main theme of the show. And then, of course, it was Lorne Balfe and Rupert Gregson Williams that did the first two seasons of the show. And then Martin Phipps has taken over for the third season and beyond, at least as far as I can tell. So you're going to hear Gregson Williams, Lauren Balfe, and Martin Phipps be talked about a lot in this show. But this may be the only podcast where you will actually hear me talk about Hans Zimmer, who brings you the main theme for this show. And Hans Zimmer is a name that a lot of people are familiar with, even if they generally don't think about music that's in a television series or in movies. Hans Zimmer has won many, many awards, and he's been the composer for many, many successful films and television shows. Just to rattle off a few that you might recognize, The Gladiator, Inception, The Da Vinci Code, The Dark Knight, Man of Steel, or... Maybe you're into television shows that he's composed for, like Blue Planet 2, Genius, Through the Wormhole, or the Bible. And, of course, that's just a very small fraction, a very small sample size of Hans Zimmer's resume. So, don't get on me if I didn't include your favorite film or series that he's been composed for. Now, he does head the creative group that Balf and... Gregson Williams have been a part of as well. So a lot of the music of the show has at least always come through him, if not from him, at least up until Martin Phipps, who took over in season three. So something you might be questioning is why use Hans Zimmer just for a theme? Why use an icon like this for a show like this? And the answer really is, because he is who he is, and they could get him to do it. I mean, who wouldn't want Hans Zimmer composing for your show if you could get him, even if it's just the main theme? So this main theme comes from Hans himself, and it's a pretty iconic theme. It's, it's as iconic of a theme as his own name, in my opinion. And this theme is unique. It's not original, but it is unique. Why do I say it's not original? Well, the entire progression of the harmony for this piece 
is repeated verbatim from a piece several hundred years before. And more on that in just a second. But before we dive in here, I do want to outline to you one time only. I promise I won't go through this in every podcast. But I do want to outline to you some key elements of a score that I personally look at in order to determine whether that score has an ability to really tell a story. And there are at least four, and sometimes there's even more things, that can make a score or a theme really tell us about what's happening as we watch. The first thing, especially in a theme song, that I'm always looking for is melodic shape and how memorable it is. Melodic shape helps to tell the story by literally taking us higher or lower. Do the notes start high and drop lower by the end? Or maybe vice versa? Or even do certain passages, the shape changes dramatically to help add tension or excitement for the episode that we're about to see? Maybe the notes just kind of noodle around a certain fixed point. The same way that gravity helps keep us on the ground. Are there sudden leaps or falls in the notes that might be an indication of stability or volatility in the melody or in the story? All of these kind of elements about the melodic shape generate different kinds of thoughts and feelings. Especially in a theme song where you have the tone for the entire show being set up before you even watch an episode. A second element that I look for in film scores is the timbre. What is timbre? Timbre means the instruments that are being used. You're going to get a different feeling if a clarinet is playing as opposed to a tuba, especially if they're both playing the same melody, right? Also, something to consider is how do the different instruments that are used meld together to create a sound that really is often greater than the sum of its parts. As an example, if you ever listen to a concert band in college or in high school, if it's played well, sometimes the entire concert band will actually sound like it's a pipe organ. Now, the third element that I always look to is rhythm and tempo. Uh, I kind of put those together And tempo is the speed at which the music is counted. Like, is it counted one, two, three, four? Or is it counted one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four? The speed is the tempo. And rhythm is the way the song is subdivided into little parts. For instance, you might have one, two, three, four, or one and a two and a three and a four and a. They have different kinds of energies, right? And on top of that, there's kind of a third element to all of this third category that I have, and that is what we call meter, which means how is the piece counted? How many beats does it occupy before we feel like we've gotten back around to a first beat? Does the count feel smooth and symmetrical? Like this, one, two, one, two. Or maybe even a waltz, like this, one, two, three, one, two, three. Or 
does it kind of feel off kilter because it's a mixed meter count, like a seven, four or something like that. Like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. Those are what we call mixed meter. And those can all generate different feelings as well. How fast, how it's subdivided, which gives it the energy or how it's counted, which gives it an overall feeling of conformity or lack of conformity. And finally, and sometimes most importantly, the aspect of harmony is something that we must pay attention to when we're listening to film scores. What kind of harmony that is being applied to the melody can greatly influence the emotions we feel. Is it what we call a major harmony? Because that tends to be more hopeful or happy most of the time. A chord like this. It doesn't feel dissonant to us. Or maybe we have a chord that is minor. A harmony that is minor. Which tends to make us feel sad. Or sometimes even a little scared. And it sounds like this. Or maybe the triad that everything is based on is what we call augmented. That gives you another feel, almost an otherworldly kind of feel. Something that just seems strange, not quite right. Or maybe it's a diminished kind of harmony, where the harmonies sound like they really have to go somewhere. They create a lot of tension, which is used a lot to accompany scary stuff. So harmony has all of these subcategories as well. And we can get into the specifics of those differences throughout the podcast as they are applied. And I'm going to paraphrase here, but... Evidently, Peter Morgan, the showrunner, had emphasized to everyone that traditional types of styling should be used to represent the tradition of the monarchy itself. And Hans Zimmer literally did that. He took a piece from Henry Purcell composed in 1691 and used that piece's harmony verbatim to base his theme upon. I'm going to share a little bit of a secret with you that you may or may not be aware of already. But ever since the creation of what musicians know as the 12-tone row in Western music, it is insanely difficult to create anything that would actually be called original as far as instrumental music is concerned. The 12-tone row mathematically presents every possible combination of notes, more or less. However, that's not to say that artists cannot create things that are unique. But as far as instrumental music is concerned, I really hate the idea of calling any new music original. Now, song music, music with lyrics or voices, those can be a little bit more original. Because the difference is the lyrics. And lyrics can make a piece much more original. But here's the thing. If you go through a lot 
of popular music. What you're going to hear is, okay, different lyrics. However, a lot of them use the same harmony underneath them as songs before them. And that's because of the limitation of being able to create original, satisfactory instrumental music. So if an artist is unable to create something completely original, then they look for some way to make whatever it is that they came up with unique and make it their own. And that's basically what Hans Zimmer has done with this piece. Now, he hasn't plagiarized anything. Actually, I would suspect that Henry Purcell's work from a late 17th century is most likely all public domain now. He can use it just the same as he could use Happy Birthday. But he has honored Peter Morgan's request for using tradition. And then he's twisted it to make his own theme unique and a theme that kind of has Hans's own flair to it. The Purcell piece that Hans took this from is actually from the third act of Purcell's King Arthur opera. It's the intro part to an aria called What Power Art Thou? And you can find recordings of that on YouTube. I'll try and remember to put a link to a YouTube version of Purcell's piece in the show notes so that you can hear the exact similarities between it and Hans Zimmer's piece here for yourself. But I'm going to play for you just a little bit of the first part of that intro. And again, Zimmer's entire theme here is based just on the intro of Purcell's piece. The first part from Purcell is this. Now, that particular set of chords, meaning the notes that are stacked on top of each other to create the harmonies, that particular chord progression is used a lot and in a lot of songs. So you can say, in a way, that even Purcell at that point is steeped in tradition, and we definitely are. But the difference is is that Hans didn't just stop there. He took the full intro into use as his basis for harmony. And the next part is probably going to sound really familiar to you as well if you've listened to the main theme of The Crown at all. And you can hear the rest of it in the YouTube. I'll be sure to provide that link for you. But trust me, it's the exact same sequence of harmony. Again, we call that a chord progression. The thing is, is that Hans creates his own melody. Again, not exactly original, but unique. And something that tells his story on top of the progression provided by Purcell. And the first thing that Hans does with the Purcell piece is he changes the key. And what is a key, you ask? 
Well, in Western music, a key is the center of what we call tonality or harmony. And that means that it's a fixed space that all of the notes used for that particular piece of music focus back to. It kind of makes a place that we think of as home musically. And in Western harmony, there are 12 different keys to choose from. Eastern harmonies, they offer a little bit more of a complex system, but we're only going to focus on the Western 12-note system of harmonies uh, for this show. And harmony is derived from an eight-note scale in one of those 12 keys. And you don't really need to know all of this, but I think it's helpful if a time comes up like here. One of the things that Hans does is he takes the original Purcell piece and puts that same sequence of harmony, again, called the chord progression, and he bases it on a different note of the 12 to choose from. So instead of what you heard me play before, you're instead going to hear the same sequence of harmony starting in this key, as opposed to where it was before. So he changes the key from B flat minor to D minor. Don't worry, you don't need to know any of this. I'm not going to be issuing a test at the end. Just giving you the information that you can further look up if you wish. The other thing that Hans does to make this piece more unique to himself is he changes the articulations of the chords. And this is another thing that can affect how the music tells a story. For instance, in the Purcell piece, the notes are short and separated. But what Hans Zimmer does is he makes all of the notes long. Instead of the stabbing kind of way that Purcell's does, his notes are held out. And that's where we're going to start by listening to the actual presentation of the theme itself. You're going to hear that common chord progression here. It's functionally is the same as the Purcell, but we are in a different key and the notes are held out long. We're going to get this. Here's that clip. Okay, so that's a very traditional sound, right? And we know that that harmony is the same that was used by Purcell over 300 years ago. The difference being that the notes are held out long, but there's so much more about this very beginning, and you might say, well, Matt, it's just four chords. Yes, it is just four chords, but there's a lot to it. What about the sounds of the instruments playing or producing those chords? And this is where we get into the idea that Hans is trying to tell us a story. And if you listen to the complete theme, 
the idea that I come to, as well as watching the episodes of the television show, is that Hans is trying to convey to us that you have a struggle with a monarch. There is the tradition of the monarchy that you must uphold. But you are also an individual trying to find yourself in that. And Tambor helps to start to tell the story. We start out with the woodwind instruments producing these chords. And the woodwinds that are producing these harmonies, these chords, perhaps it's a combination of clarinet or flute, even sounds maybe like a a little bit of a pure pipe organ, which can also use reeds, just like woodwinds, by the way. But what is making those timbres or combinations of instruments sound pure, and what does that represent? Well, what it represents is Lilibet at the beginning of her journey. She's not been overly exposed to everything that goes on with the monarchy, with the heavy traditions that hold a monarch in place. And so her point of view is very pure. And why choose these instruments? Well, not to get too technical here, but it's the waveforms that these instruments produce. They're very smooth. They're very much like a sine wave that has very few jagged edges in them. Literally pure sounds. And that is the way that any monarch, such as Lilibet, would start as. Because until you get into the job of being a queen, you're not really tainted by that job yet, right? So this pure sound is a great way to produce the starting point, the purity as we go through the journey with this monarch. There's also melodic shape that we have to consider. Even though it's just four chords, you have to think of the top note that you're hearing as acting as the melody. And the chords combined with that shape is telling us something about the purity of Elizabeth. We get a climb because Elizabeth is saying, hey, I can do this. And then it drops to a place below where it starts. Oh, this might be a little harder than I thought. But then, if I try really hard, I might be able to keep my head above water. And the chords tell that same story. Remember minor chords, sad or a little scary. That's minor. That's a little sad or a little scary. Hey, I can do this, but it's still a very scary thing. Oh, wait, what's that pulling me down there? And then finally, we get to a major chord where there's a little bit of hope in there. 
So all of that speaks just in shape and in harmony to the purity of Elizabeth and her thinking that she's going to be just fine embracing this position as a monarch. But as we all know, monarchy is actually still the work of more than just one person. So as we get to the next part, the machinery of the monarch rolls in. And this is accentuated by the addition of more instruments join in. More instruments with slightly more jagged edges to their waveforms than before. Instruments like violins, the percussive elements, brass. It all almost seems to bury the woodwinds that we're starting with. And you can imagine that even the purest intentions of a new monarch start to get covered up by what the monarchy actually is. So, obviously, there's a whole lot more going on here than just those woodwinds holding out chords now, right? There's all kinds of new timbres added, like the violins, like the brass. The harmony, though, is still completely borrowed from the Purcell harmony, the Purcell chord progression that was used in that aria. And one of the things that's great about that Purcell harmony is that even though it was created over 300 years ago, it actually sounds modern. And one reason that it does is because the conventions of harmony that Purcell used are something that we actually hear much more often today than anybody would have heard back then. For instance, the piece itself, when we go back to the first clip, it clearly starts in minor. That's a darker sound, right? A, a more saddened or even scary sound. But when you get into the second section, things change. Just the comparison of those two chords, the second one is major. But the key here is that Purcell used both major and minor in the same piece, which really up until a hundred years later than Purcell, wasn't done hardly at all. And the reason is, is because a lot of composers for the day that we know of now, their work survived because they were hired by patrons. Patrons who were normally very highly religious. And it was actually considered blasphemous or even evil to mess with the clearly laid out sense of harmony that whatever their religion gave them. If you go back to the coverage that we did of The Last Kingdom of Season 4 on the Double P main feed, you'll hear me explaining to Bubba and Catfish that the score that is used in that show, if a composer tried to compose that stuff in that time period, he'd have been burned at the stake for being a witch because you just didn't mess with the sense of harmony, especially the Dorian-Gregorian chant harmony of the church at the time. And that really persisted through the Baroque period and into the classical period. That's when things started to get broken a little bit by 
Mozart by Beethoven. However, a hundred years before, Purcell was already doing it. And that's all interesting, but what can that tell us about this story? Why did this piece speak so well to the plight of a monarch adjusting to her new position? Well, this part of the progression, starting with the major chords, it actually has hope in it, but it does eventually go back to minor and a darker sound. You start off again like this. That's still hopeful. That second note there, that points back to the minor though, and I'll get back to that in a second. But then we get to a chord that we call the dominant, which says, hey, we're going to go somewhere. And then we end up going back to the minor. So, you have major with hope, another major, which gives it even more hope, but with that additional note, that F note, the minor third of tonality, that's what gives us a hint that it's going to go back to minor. And it also tells us that it was a dark journey all along, despite those flashes of hope. And there are other indications that this was going to be minor or darker all along. And these are things that are also additional to the chord progression that Purcell provided. Zimmer is just adding on these little motif figures. For instance, there's a little motif or a little snippet that gets repeated throughout the entire section. It's two notes that you would only find in the minor key like this. Now, if we were staying in major the whole time, but instead, we get the implication that it's going to be minor. It's all based on the relative harmony. And there's also an implication of rhythm that helps give urgency to everything as well. For instance, there is this one little line that goes back and forth between two notes, but it's kind of going twice as fast as everything else, where the chords are going one, two, three, four. The notes are going twice as fast like this. So that adds urgency to us. It makes us excited to watch the program that we're about to watch. And in that earlier minor figure that I played, the urgency is halved yet again. It plays even twice as fast as that line. It plays... So there's all these subdivisions, the rhythm that is giving us the urge to watch the show. And it's not something that you consciously even really hear it's just something that's there very buried in the mix to give you the psychological effect because music is really just a series of almost like hypnotic suggestions that musicians long ago discovered that nearly every human being responds to similarly but now 
we get to the most interesting part of Purcell's harmony and Zimmer's arrangement in this next section. so much happening in that first let's just again look at the timbres and how they represent different factions of the monarchy the horn sections because we typically think of horns as being very royal when you think of fanfares and things like that they are now representing the tradition of the monarchy and again this is Purcell's progression but Hans has translated the use of the timbres and the melody in order to make things represent what this show will be about. So you have the tradition in the horns, but the melody now kinds to separate itself from the rest of it. The melody is carried, once again, more by woodwind kind of sounds. And this is Zimmer arranging everything to show Elizabeth's struggles as an individual represented by the woodwinds as it goes with and against the tradition of the monarchy. The horns represent the tradition. The woodwinds represent Elizabeth. The strings are involved too. Think of the strings like the machinery of the monarch itself the way the monarchy works. Parts of it joins with the melody because part of that machinery is working with Elizabeth for what she wants. And part of it is working with the horns or against Elizabeth. It's more part of the tradition. So it's all divided up. And rhythm-wise, for the first time, the melody separates itself from each chord as well. It moves in rhythms faster than the change of the chords. It starts doing things like this. Those are notes that have some of the division as opposed to just not just one long chord but now there's movement in it. This is Elizabeth working to try and get the monarchy to do what she wants it to do. And the harmony is still represented in the horns, and it's the traditional part, again, taken from the tradition of the Purcell piece. But Zimmer is working the melodic shape, whether the notes go higher or lower, to try and fight against the harmony. It's a perfect representation of Elizabeth trying to find her place to be her and to represent the monarchy's tradition. And sometimes those come into conflict. And this is the part that is actually very surprisingly modern for harmony in terms of uh, 17th or 18th century from Purcell. So it really gives Zimmer some latitude to put his great storytelling touches on it. As far as melodic shape goes, you know that if you want to jump across a wide obstacle, you probably want to get 
a running start to give you as much momentum as you can. And this is what Zimmer's melody does. It takes a step down and then tries to go up. It tries, it takes a step back to leap forward. But the harmony, the monarchy, in the first phase of this section, it kind of holds its own. That bottom note isn't moving. It's saying, no, 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 wait a minute, girl. You're, you're not going anywhere yet. We got we to gotta think this out. So the first chord is the dominant chord in terms of harmony. And that's what makes us want to resolve things one way or another. And then the melody tries to pull it up. So what you have is the melody's pulling up, but the other notes are either staying fixed or they're going down. Even though she has succeeded a little bit, the tradition of the monarchy is still saying, oh no, wait a minute. So the notes that create there are a major chord as well, which indicates success. But again, the bottom of the chord, the lowest note, it's not going up with her. It's still hanging on to strict tradition. So Elizabeth, melodically shaped, she tries to take a step back again. But this time, the monarchy is going to win. It's going to pull Elizabeth's melody back down with it. Everything went down. She couldn't succeed in pulling it any higher. And the harmony won. The tradition is winning here. She tries to fight again, and she gets pulled down even further. Harmony and tradition is still pulling against her melody. But Lilibet's not going to give up. She's going to continue to try and fight. And she does manage to pull part of the chord back up with her, even though the very bottom is still holding firm. So there, the bottom stayed where it was, but at least she didn't get pulled down with it. It's a musical story. And we are establishing both the tradition and Elizabeth are very strong. And they've been kind of stalemated in a way to this point. And remember how I said the strings were divided earlier? Well, the other part is joined by the woodwinds too. And they're doing these little fast motives to help demonstrate that machinery that is following Elizabeth, but it's being pulled down with the melody too. So you end up getting this same little motive, which is very fast rhythmically, but it's getting pulled down through all of the chords the same way. With the first chord, you get... And then the next chord, all of that is being pulled down with Elizabeth. That's the machinery that's with her, but they can't fight their tradition any more than she can. And now 
we're going to get to the biggest part of the theme, the climax of the piece. One thing that was really interesting, and I'm not even sure if it was intentional on either the showrunner's point or Zimmer's point because he saw the credit sequence before he composed the piece, but the biggest, the hugest, the largest part of the piece actually starts where the credits for the music are. I mean, how convenient. You see Hans Zimmer's name and oh, big chord. Uh, but before I play the actual part of that piece, I do want to break it down a little bit so that it's going to be the last thing you hear in this much more longer than usual segment uh, that I have going on here. I've been breaking this down extensively uh, most of the time in the podcast. I won't be doing that. But since this is the main theme, I'm, I'm spending a lot more time here than I will on other pieces in the future. Anyway, the biggest change in the melody is that now it is in octaves. And that means that it's the same note, but one is played in a register higher than the other. It's like two A's, except one A is an octave higher. And that gives everything more power. It gives it more lift. My melodica is a little bit out of tune, so I'm I, sorry about that. The interesting thing is that even though this melody is lifting, the harmony continues to go down a little bit. So the tradition is still fighting one way, and Elizabeth, with all of her power, is fighting the other way. Where you have the harmony going down. But as the melody continues up, then it starts to pull the harmony back up, the horns, the tradition. And finally, we get to the big deciding moment where the harmony has been pulled up as far as it's going to go and resolves back down to that dominant chord, which tells us, oh, what's going to happen? And it's interesting because that's the last big chord that we hear in this theme. It's the dominant chord. It's, a, it's sole function is to lead us somewhere, anywhere. And when we hear the dominant chord in any key, our brains begin to crave resolution because it doesn't feel finished to us. We ask the question, what's going to happen? Will the queen win and, and change this monarchy? Will the monarchy finally make her into the queen that everybody else has been? So what's the answer? Well, we get this very small statement that returns to the original timbres. It returns to the woodwinds. The melody climbs and retreats and one note tells us that we are about to see how this struggle unfolds this time around in this episode. So we have this. And then we have. There's one note in there that is making us say, wait and see. It makes us want to watch the episode because of this note, which is, again, the dominant. There's no resolution. 
You have to watch the episode to see how this particular struggle for this particular episode resolves. And in that way, this theme is the perfect way to get you to want to watch the episode. Now, I know that in our age of Want It Now and binging episodes that we tend to skip over intros and credits. I urge you, as you watch this show, to once in a while not skip the intro in order to remind yourself that this epic theme gives you a template for the premise of the entire show and also helps build your excitement for the episode. And actually, as a little side note, that last little bit is not part of the Purcell piece. And I'm actually not really sure who to credit for this, be it Hans Zimmer or Rupert Gregson Williams. I assume Zimmer, but no matter who did it, that last little denouement that you're going to hear at the very end of this theme is also used as part of a piece that Gregson Williams composed for the first episode. And it's something that becomes a big part of the music for season one. And we'll talk about that when the podcast reviews the first five episodes of The Crown. In the meantime, here's that epic ending. I'm going to be back with some closing thoughts in just a second. So that was my analysis of the main theme for this show, and I'm going to try and pick a theme from each episode as we go along and explore it. Probably not to that extent, because that would make podcasts terribly long, and maybe the solution for that is just to put the music analysis in its own podcast. That way it's not part of the YouTube or anything like that. I just simply don't put that part up on YouTube. If you are watching this on YouTube, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your audio podcasts and you'll get the musical review if that's something that you want. If that's something that you don't want, then stay here on YouTube. But either way, as we comment on the story of this series, please feel free to leave comments in YouTube's. Please remember that you can access us anytime at LILIBETPOD on Twitter. That's LilybetPod on Twitter. Or you can send emails to LilybetPod at gmail.com. L-I-L-I-B-E-T-Pod. Find the double P and comment there. Double P-H-Q on Twitter. The word double, the letters P-H-Q on Twitter. Or you can go to Facebook. Facebook.com slash double P-H-Q There's also a phone number that you can call and leave a voicemail. If you're one of those people who still does that, we would love to hear from you and include you in feedback podcasts, which we will have sporadically throughout our series of podcasts as well. 314-269-0421. But we want to hear from you. We want to hear your thoughts. And we definitely need you to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast Wherever you're allowed to leave written reviews, please do so wherever you're getting your podcasts for us. 
because that will help us stay noticeable among other podcasts covering this series. We will start our coverage of the first five episodes soon, so please go ahead and start getting your thoughts in if you've already seen the series, or if you're watching along with us, start watching. You've got five episodes to go before we release our next podcast, where hopefully we'll have Bubba and Holly both with us. And thanks once again for listening to Podcast Lilibet. Tweet to Lilibet Pod, send emails to lilibetpod at gmail.com, or call 314-269-0421. You can find all back episodes and information at lilibetpod.wordpress.com. Part of Double P Media. Double P Media.com.